Turn to Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, I'm preaching tonight on the subject soul music. Soul music. God loves music. Did you know that? In fact, most places I go, they'd rather hear the music and hear me preach. And uh, they, uh, there's just something about us inside of every one of us. We love music. When the world was created, it was created to the sound of music. The Bible says in Job 38, 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Zephaniah 3 tells us that the Lord can sing over us. God puts something inside of us that there is a love for music. The Psalms, as they are recorded, you've got 66 books in your Bible. Out of 66 books in your Bible, the Psalms that are written is the longest. And those Psalms is nothing more than the hymnals for the Hebrew people. And it, it shows all types of life and what people are going through in life. And with this love of music, music can be drawn for the good or for the bad. There's really three types of music, I believe. I believe, first of all, there's music that appeals to the ear. That's soothing music. That's what we hear on an elevator. That's what we hear when we're in a store. Soothing music. Maybe at a restaurant. Soothing music. Something to slow life down. Just enjoy that quiet music in the background. It's soothing. At the funeral today, before the service started, and again, when the service ended, as the people were passing by to pay their last respects, we heard soothing music. So there's soothing music that, that appeals to the ear. There is music that appeals to the flesh. That's sensual music. That's bad music, by the way. Thank all three of you for the Amen just appeals to the flesh and all the things that are wrong and the things to draw people into what's wrong. But I'm not looking at soothing music and I'm not looking at sensual music. I'm looking at soul music. Soul music appeals to the heart. And God's music in, is more than just appealing to the heart. It's more really than even soul music. It's spiritual music. Spiritual psalms, spiritual psalms. Now let's look at this psalm and read just a few verses out of it and I'll try to be brief tonight. Usually I'm not, but I'll try to. In Psalm 32 and verse one, blessed is, is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned in the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found, surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. 
Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. That's where we're at as a church right now. God has a song for us, a song of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to wicked to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Let's just break this down, this psalm down, and I'm, I'm just gonna bring really the summary out of this psalm and tell you why that I think that this is soul music, spiritual music that touches our heart. One thing is, if you have a superscription under the psalm where it says Psalm 32, some Bibles will have it, some Bibles will not. It is just an addition to let you know who wrote the psalm and what the psalm oftentimes is about. In this particular psalm, we see that it was a psalm of David, and then there's a word, maskil. Maskil simply means enlightenment. And this is a song of David where he was enlightened. And he's saying, when you're going through times of sorrow and times of wickedness and times of discouragement, you need a song that will enlighten you to help you find joy in the middle of your pain and in the middle of your suffering and sorrow. So this is a psalm of enlightenment. And when the enlightenment comes, David said, I'm writing it so that you can have some wisdom when you face certain things. With this psalm, we don't know the tune to this psalm. We don't know what the song sounded like. You may know, but I don't know, and I can't find any record of what it would have sounded like. I don't know what it sounded like, but I do know what it says. Now, that's strange to me that God preserved the words to these psalms, but we don't know the tune to any of them. Why is that? Because God, we say it a lot of times, but God means it when he says it. He's simply saying, I'm not so concerned about how it sounds. I'm concerned about the words more than I am the ability to sing it. That's why the Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. God's concerned about what we're saying in our songs. Our songs should be songs about our trust in the Lord and the ability of God and what God can do. So from this, we see maybe just three things I wanna point out to you out of this particular psalm, why God has chosen to leave us the words of this song to help us through our sorrows and our trials. This psalm written by David tells us of a time in David's life. And the first thing we pick up, he really opens up his heart and reveals things that probably most people would never reveal. See, that's why I love the Bible, because I know God inspired the Bible by the Holy Ghost. And the reason I know God inspired the Bible by the Holy Ghost is because if man was writing anything, all man would tell you is about their successes and how good they are and how wonderful they are. But in this, we see their wickedness and their wrong and their failures and their mistakes just as much as we see their victories. 
So in this Psalm, we can tell very quickly, he was bothered. Something was bothering him. Do you know there's nothing like trying to worship God when your spirit is bothered and your mind is bothered by something. What was he bothered by? Well, he had a reason for being bothered. It is believed that this Psalm was written in conjunction with the event in his life when Nathan the prophet came to David. You remember what happened? David had committed sin. And not only did he commit the sin of adultery, but then he was responsible for another man's life. And David, now through this sin, he has a child. Some say the Psalm probably was written right after the child was born. Most, most people that students that study the Bible feel like that this took place one year or about a year after David committed his sin. So he is gone a year now and he thinks I got by with it. But then along come the prophet and he tells him that wonderful illustration about a cruel man that steals another poor man's sheep. And when he gives the illustration, he looks at him and the prophet says to David, thou art the man. And David then, it, he, he'd gone a year. He thought, I got by with it. I'll, I'll never get caught. But can I remind you, every one of us, we don't get by with anything with God. He sees it all. He knows it all. He understands it all. We may think we've gone for a year. We didn't get caught. But he knows. And eventually, our sin will find us out. He's bothered because of all the things he did that was wrong. It bothers me when people's not bothered when they do wrong. That's a dangerous thing when sin no longer bothers us. And he breaks it down. He says, I want you to know why I'm bothered about this. He, he thought about what he had committed in his life. He didn't say he was just a sinner. Well, look, he goes into great detail. You'll find in verse one and two, three or four words that he used. He first used the word, he said, I'm guilty of transgression. Transgression means to trespass. You all know what trespassing is. When you see a sign, no trespassing, that means there's a boundary. Don't cross that boundary. I've used it here in the church before. When I was a young boy growing up, we lived right beside of a state forest. And what a wonderful place to be raised beside of that state forest because we had all of that great vast land that had palms on it, forest in it. We could ginseng hunt, we could hunt for yellow root, we could, we could hunt for squirrels, uh, we, we could rabbit hunt, there were ponds, we could fish. It was a wonderful place to be raised. Just outside the edge of that forest, there was a gentleman that had a pond. You had to cross a creek. And uh, back in that time, the, they didn't have a bridge. You actually drove your car through the creek to get to the other side. And if you go far enough, he had a beautiful, beautiful, it really is like a small lake, a very large pond. And in that pond were the biggest bass that I had ever seen. But there was one problem. It was private property. And he had signs up everywhere. Now I'm just repeating what the sign said. He posted signs everywhere. No trespassing and below every sign was a second sign. Survivors will be prosecuted. 
That's what he said. No trespassing, survivors will be prosecuted. You know that God has some signs in life that you may think you're gonna survive it, but you're not gonna survive it. You're still gonna answer for it. So you cross the boundary. And then he also uses the word sin. The word sin means to miss the mark. Now, sometimes we read these words and we think they're all the same, but really it's not to miss the mark. That means that if there is a target there and I shoot at the target and I miss the target, I didn't hit what I was supposed to hit. So really sin falls into a category that it's more than just crossing the boundary. It means that, that I did not do what I should have done in addition to maybe doing what I shouldn't have done. So it falls in the category of things undone. Do you know every lost person is a sinner? Now every one of them haven't committed the same sin, but there's one sin that they've all committed. They have not believed on the name of the only begotten of the Father. They are unbelievers. They haven't believed in Jesus. All lost people have that one sin in common. In other words, they haven't done what they should do. That's repent of their sins, ask the Lord to save them and confess their sin. And because they haven't turned to Jesus and put their faith in him, they have not done that. So they have missed the mark. There's the word iniquity. That means twisted or crooked. You remember a while back that I preached a sermon on iniquity and said that the real meaning of the word is bend. It's what you're bent toward. Every one of you have things in your life, including myself, and it's not the same thing for everyone, but there is a twist in our life, a bend in our life, that we battle that thing more than anything else. Some people are bent toward lying. Some people are bent toward alcohol. Some people are bent toward sexual sins, immorality. Some people are bent toward fighting. It's quiet now. And unfortunately, that being, whether we want to admit it or not, a lot of it comes through generations. You can find something in certain families and that does, I don't want you to leave here and be terrified to say, oh, well, my family, they were guilty of doing this thing all the time, this certain thing, but there are generational curses that you'll find out one right after another falls into the same type of sin and the same type of iniquity. It's a bend toward that. And when that bend is there, do you know how many children now being here this many years, how many children that I have met with and counseled with in the history of my ministry now that their parents were unsaved and they were involved in certain sin and the children loved their parents, but they would hate that sin and they'd talk about that iniquity in their parents' life and how much that they hate it. And when they get to be an adult, that's exactly what they do. there's that bend. You're bent toward it and you're wondering, I don't know why you've had impressions in your life. And those impressions tend to pull you in that direction. And then not only that, he had guile. 
Gal is deceit. Gal is protecting the wrong. That's what he was doing. He thought, I've, I've covered this. And then suddenly he's confronted with it. He thought that he'd outrun it and it catches up with him. You're never going to be able to hide from who you are or what you are. The hermit crab, do you know hermit crabs don't have a shell of their own? Hermit crabs have no shell that they call home. What they do is they find empty marine shells and they go in to others' shells that's left behind and they hide out inside of those. But they really don't have anything of that. And that's what happens with sin and transgression and iniquity and guile. We think that we're hid and we think that we can get by with it and we think that we can rationalize it and we think that we can analyze it and we think that if we keep silent about it, nobody else will know. But there's somebody that knows. God knows and God says that when we realize that we have sinned by the help and power of the Holy Ghost and we understand we have found God, it creates a wound. It bothered him and now he's wounded. There's two kinds of wounds in every human being. There's the wound of sorrow and the wound of guilt. The wound of sorrow is a clean wound. He talks about sorrows in this. It's terrible to go through sorrow. You see people in sorrow, I see people in sorrow. We experience sorrow. Sorrows are a terrible thing, but it's a clean wound. What do you mean by a clean wound? In time, give it enough time, it will, with the help of God, be healed. You won't get over it, but you'll get through it. You'll continue to live. You'll continue to go on. But the wound of guilt is different. The wound of guilt is a dirty wound. It never heals. So all of this has brought guilt in his life because he can't find the answer. So now he's not only bothered, but he's broken. He's so broken that he says, I've got to take care of this thing. I've got to get it right. So the one that was bothered became broken. If you are bothered by sin and you don't do what David did, you'll get to the point it won't bother you anymore. But not being bothered by it doesn't mean it's right. It just means your conscience has been seared with a hot iron. That's what's wrong with the church in America today. We just let things go on and go on and go on and we hide the scripture about it and don't talk about it and then we let it go far enough then churches are wrapped up in the wrong and when they're wrapped up in the wrong and wrapped up in the sin, pretty soon it bothers them to begin with but pretty soon they're open about it. They're brazen about their sin. Why? They're proud of the fact that they're doing things that the Bible teaches not to do. David said that wasn't the case. I was broken by it. So he did two things. The first thing he did, he acknowledged his sin in verse five. He admits to it. He comes clean with God. He acknowledges that he's guilty of all of that. I acknowledge my sin under thee. You cannot get your sin taken care of until you first acknowledge the fact that I have sinned. Specifically, 
your sin before God, you've got to say, I'm guilty. Acknowledge it. And then he admits. He admits what he acknowledges. Well, where do you get that? Verse five. He said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hid. And said, I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. He confessed it. He said, I'm never going to get rid of it until I confess it. I'm not going to be able to find the peace that I need. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts you. And then you're, you're at a place where you're convicted, but you still, it's not just conviction. You've got to confess your sin. Telling God what you did, even though he already knows it. And he confesses that. And once that he confesses that, you receive forgiveness from that. What a wonderful truth from the word of God. Why is that important? Well, let me put it this way. According to our constitution, what's left of it? Oh, we've got it. We just don't follow it. But there's amendments to the Constitution. The Fifth Amendment deals with something called the law of double jeopardy. You all know what that is. Just I, I know probably legally I'm not explaining it right, but I think it'll be clear enough that you can understand. It simply means that if you have been found not guilty of a crime, you can't be tried for that crime ever again. If you're charged with, with murder and they find you innocent, the law of double jeopardy is the protection that you have, that you can't be charged for that same murder again or any other crime. Now, here's where we make a big mistake. We think forgiveness hinges on us, but this is how it works. The Holy Spirit convicts us. And the blood of Jesus Christ, when we confess our sin, cleanses us. So if we ever come back and say to the Lord, oh Lord, forgive me of that sin. The problem with that is spiritually, the law of double jeopardy exists. The Holy Spirit says, forgive you of what? I'm not convicting you two times of the same thing. And not only that, but I don't care what you're guilty of. The Bible says that when you are in the process of being charged and convicted with a crime, another way that judicial system ceases concerning a crime is if the person that is being convicted dies. If you die, no trial. And can I say this to you? When we come to Christ, we are no longer the servant of sin. The old man, the old woman is dead. And therefore, when we stand before God in judgment, the king of the universe, the judge of all creation will say, I have no record of your sin. You have confessed those sin. Those sins are gone. And God has forgiven you of those sins. That's why you have to admit your sins. But then look, finally, he was bothered. 
He was broken, but then he was blessed. Verses one, two, 11. He talks about his blessings. He said, first of all, when it came to my transgression, he talked about his transgression. He said, my transgression was forgiven. That means it was carried away. Washed away by the blood of Christ. In the state of New York, upstate New York, from what I've read, there is a tombstone. And on that tombstone, there is no name. There is no date of birth. There is no date of death. On that tombstone, there is one word, forgiven. That's exactly how God looks at us. As long as you're forgiven, the problem is if you haven't sought God for forgiveness, but if you are forgiven, all is well, friend. So that's what he does with our transgressions. He forgives our transgressions. And then what about our sin? He covered my sin. Covered my sin with what? With the blood. And our sins are forgiven. Our transgressions, they're they're also forgiven. Our sins are covered. But then he said iniquity. What about that iniquity? Our iniquity, he said he imputeth not iniquity. To impute is to charge to one's account. That means it's canceled. It's canceled. <laughs> I told Candy, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but an individual talked to me uh, and they were telling me a testimony of their church. They built a beautiful church. It is a gorgeous church. And I think when they finished, it was like 1.1, 1.2 million as they were nearing the end that they were facing in debt that they were raising the money for. And an individual in the church was approached by a business person. They worked for this person. And they said, uh, they said hey, uh, did you get your church done? Yeah, it's, it's done. Well, have you got it paid for? Oh, you... No, we, we don't have it paid for. And they said, you better get a hold of your treasurer and tell them don't write any more checks because I went to the bank today and paid for it. Now stay with me. Do you think they kept writing checks on a loan that had been paid for? No. In fact, you can do anything you want to. Once that mortgage is paid for, the debt is canceled. I've even been in churches where they burnt the mortgage. You know why? There's nothing to hold against them anymore. It's been paid for. Can I tell you that's exactly what happens in the life of David. He says that first I was filled with guilt, but from my guilt I found grace. And when I found grace, thank God I got flooded with glory. That's what happened in his life. So you don't have to pay for what's already been paid for. Years ago, we were, uh, I, I preached in different countries, not that that matters, but I've been honored to preach in different countries. One of the countries we held several meetings in uh, was a country named Trinidad. Trinidad is near Tobago. And uh, 
it's a beautiful, beautiful island country. And you're, you're just, just a few miles off the coast of Venezuela. It's beautiful, beautiful land, beautiful country. And they had a lot of poverty there. And one day while we were there in the meeting, we'd gone hard and the pastor said, tomorrow I want to take you somewhere special. So he took us to Pitch Lake, just like a baseball pitch, Pitch Lake. He said, have you ever been to Pitch Lake? I said, oh no, I've never been there. I, I don't know, some of my sisters may have been with me on that trip. They were singing, I think. Maybe that was the trip some of them might have been with, but they took us out. It, it, it is an extinct volcano. And uh, Tim, when I got there, I was so disappointed because I didn't see a lake anywhere. All I saw was black, nothing. I didn't see anything at all. I saw no beauty in it. I saw nothing attractive about it. And he said, well, let's take a walk out on the lake. Boy, I'm telling you, I walked on a lake. But it was a pitch lake. Very hard on the surface, but some places from, even though it's an extinct volcano, there's some places where now I'm gonna find out how old some of you are. You know, you know, young people, it's hard to believe some of our roads used to didn't have blacktop on them. No asphalt. I remember when they, when you were blessed, when they started to keep dust down, they put tar on it. And then when it would get to about 100 degrees, tar, it would bubble up. Do any of you remember that? And... Uh, we never wore shoes. Don't ask me why, we just never wore shoes. And we would uh, go out when, when they would tar the road and when that would bubble up, don't ask me why it was fun, I'm just telling you it was just fun. We'd run out there and we would pop those bubbles with our toes. It was fun until it was time to take a bath and then it wasn't fun. And uh, I mean, you get scrubbed down if it took borax to get it off of you, that's what it got. But you got scrubbed down to get the tar off of you. But that tar is pitch. And he said the most amazing thing, he said, you are standing on grace. And I said, no, I'm standing on, on this lake that is just hard black. He said, oh no, just below the surface, it's soft, it's pitch. Said, this is where we get the pitch to put on the outside and the inside of ships. And that makes them waterproof so that they can sail. They coat the ship with that pitch, with that tar that keeps the water out of the ship. And he said, you know the amazing thing about Pitch Lake? He said, they have gone down as deep as 250 feet digging that pitch out to use for tar for various reasons. And he said, no matter how deep they dig, when you dig it down in 72 hours, it comes right back up to the same level. And he said, I'm here to tell you, it never runs out. I'm about to preach tonight. Thank God I don't care how deep you've got to go in the well of grace. It'll always come right back up and it'll never run out. God hasn't fallen short of his grace and power. He sees everything you're going through, I'm going through, and all the grace that we use, there's still plenty left over and God will carry us 
runs through. Grace doesn't run out. So you're here tonight and maybe you need grace. Maybe you're facing things. That makes no sense. One of our folks sent me a text. I please, I please forgive me. I don't mean to embarrass you. I'm not calling your name out. But it, it impacted me, touched me. And all they said, preacher, he is faithful even when it doesn't feel like faithfulness. That's grace. It's not a question of how do you feel about certain things. It is a question of the God we serve and the God we know and his ability.